My next guest is American writer, historian, actor and essayist whose acid wit has made him a hugely popular and indeed unpopular commentator. I like Gore when he's on this show. He says what is on his mind. Mr. Vidal has become a cultural icon. Prolific American novelist, playwright, screenwriter, historian, essayist. Conversationalist, actor, humorist and sometime political candidate. Would you welcome please Mr. Gore Vidal. From We Own This Town, this is Vidalatry. A look at the wit and wisdom in the spoken words of Gore Vidal. I'm Ryan Briegel. From the very beginning, there have always been lots of Kennedys. Joe and Rose Kennedy had nine children, and it only grew from there. Through a bit of family fate, Gore Vidal found himself connected to three Kennedys. John F. Kennedy, who Gore knew socially as Jack. Jacqueline Kennedy, who Gore says was always called Jackie until she was first lady. And Robert Kennedy, who Gore refers to disdainfully as Bobby. Gore began the 1960s inside the Kennedy inner circle, dining with Jackie, campaigning with Jack, and doing his best to avoid Bobby. But in two short years, Gore would be pushed out of their lives, no longer welcome. And by the end of the decade, two Kennedys would be dead. We begin with Jackie and Gore's simplified version of how he came to be somewhat related to her in an interview from 1993 upon the 30th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. Dear Jackie, whom we've just been thinking about, her stepfather was my stepfather. My mother divorced a gentleman called Mr. Auchincloss, who ceased to be my stepfather. And then Janet Bouvier, her mother, married Mr. Auchincloss. Gore Vidal's mother, Nina, divorced Gore's father in 1935 and married a wealthy man named Hugh Auchincloss. Gore's new stepfather lived in a large 36-room Georgian-styled mansion in Virginia called Marywood, and Gore spent his teenage years there. By the time Gore was old enough to move out of Marywood, his mother had divorced Hugh Auchincloss, Auchincloss swiftly married Janet Bouvier, and Janet's daughter Jackie Bouvier moved in, to Gore's old bedroom, in fact. But because they only shared a stepfather, and not at the same time, Gore and Jackie never met until 1949 when they both attended the same party. The size of Marywood and the Auchincloss family money would lead one to believe that both Gore and Jackie led a life of luxury, but Hugh Auchincloss was known to be less than generous with his wealth, as Gore relayed on the Afternoon Plus television program in 1981. There were certain sections of the family that were very rich and others that were not. Ms. Onassis, as she is known now, uh, is also in my same situation. We both had a stepfather who was extremely rich, but neither of us had a penny, so she had to pursue wealth in her way, and I had to write for a living. Jackie married Jack Kennedy in 1953, and by 1956, Gore was a constant presence in the couple's lives, having lunch with Jackie quite often and discussing politics with Jack. But over time, his relationship with Jackie deteriorated, and we will soon see why. And when Gore would later speak of his relationship with Jackie, he made very little effort to hide the bitterness he felt about being cut out of the Kennedy circle such as he did when Mike Wallace asked him about Jackie in 1975. What is your current relationship with Mrs. Onassis, your stepsister? 
I haven't seen her since 1962. There's no reason for our lines to cross. She was devoted to Bobby Kennedy, and I was, as you know, plainly not. And uh, we fell out over that. I kind of like her, though. She's very bright. Unlike most of the family, uh, she is quite intelligent, quite shrewd. Knows exactly what she wants, which very few people do. And uh, I think kind of admirable. Good first lady? Oh, that? No, very bad, I should think. Because but then you saw my ideas of first ladies. President's wise, I mean, mine is based on Mrs. Roosevelt. That, Whom uh, you admired immensely. Uh, yes, and I think that if you are given a great place in life, you must do something in exchange for it. I, I'm an old-fashioned Puritan about that. And uh, she had no interest in anything but herself. Mrs. Kennedy. Yeah. Which is all right. I mean, that's, that's her character. But uh, it is not noble. Gore brings up his undying admiration for Eleanor Roosevelt, which leads us right into Gore's first interaction with Jack Kennedy. My first memory of Jack was in 1956, when I congratulated him on having missed the nomination for vice president, which he would have run with the, deem, the doomed ticket, I should say, headed by Adlai Stevenson, which might have been an end to his career. He was upset at the time, but all in all, he thought it rather good thing that he had not run for vice president in 56, and he would get ready for 1960. In 1960, I ran for Congress in upstate New York, and he, of course, ran for the presidency. I saw a good bit of him then and afterwards. Uh, he was an interesting character, much more so than uh, he's been made out to be. He sometimes seems like a playboy. He had that side to him, and he certainly had his womanizing side to him which was more athletic than romantic. Gore met with Eleanor Roosevelt in 1959 at her home in Hyde Park to discuss his own run for Congress. And although she was skeptical that a Democrat could win that county in New York, she pledged her support behind Gore. When 1960 came and Jack Kennedy needed the former First Lady's approval, he knew Gore knew Mrs. Roosevelt, and Kennedy pleaded with Gore to intervene on his behalf. Eleanor Roosevelt was a strong supporter of Adelaide Stevenson, who was also vying for the nomination at the 1960 Democratic Convention. Gore arranged a private lunch for Kennedy and Eleanor Roosevelt, and Kennedy eventually won her over. He also returned the favor by speaking out in support of Gore for congressman. But it didn't take long for Gore to see that he had made a huge mistake in supporting Jack Kennedy as president as he discussed with Mike Wallace in 1975 for 60 Minutes. We began with Jack Kennedy. I liked him tremendously, and I hang his picture in my library, not as an icon, not as a memory of Camelot, not as a memory of glorious nights at the White House or in Bel Air, but never again to be taken in by anybody's charm. And he was one of the most charming men I've ever known, one of the most intelligent, and one of the most disastrous presidents I think we've ever had. When John F. Kennedy was elected, the United States was at the height of the Cold War with Russia. And, in fact, the 1960 election was primarily concerned with the fight against communism. As the first secretary of the Communist Party, Nikita Khrushchev was one of the top leaders of the Soviet Union and was committed to spreading communism throughout the world. But Kennedy, wanting to prove himself early in office, was equally driven to rid the world of communism. And although he made a number of attempts, none were very successful. Gore would often repeat the three main failures in Kennedy's first two years in office. First, 
the Bay of Pigs invasion. Second, the loss of the country Laos. And third, the Cuban Missile Crisis. All of which Gore believes led the president to send 20,000 active troops into Vietnam in 1963, propelling the United States into a war that would go on for 13 years. Gore explained each failure in the short film JFK, A Personal Memory, in 1993. Jack was of a younger generation, and he wanted to win the Cold War, which was just rhetoric for Eisenhower and rhetoric for Truman. And suddenly it began to fall into place, the inauguration. We'll bear any burden so that freedom will prevail. Well, this is a declaration of war on the Soviet Union. Then the first thing he does when he comes into office is he invades Cuba. Then he gets cold feet in the middle of the invasion and withdraws, which makes him look very bad. They try to blame it on Eisenhower, but it was totally Kennedy's responsibility. This was known as the Bay of Pigs invasion, a mission which originated with Eisenhower and was inherited by Kennedy. Fidel Castro had violently taken over Cuba in 1959, setting up a communist government that worried the U.S. Before Kennedy had taken office, the CIA had developed a plan to train the Cubans who Castro had exiled, which was anyone who opposed him, and get them ready for a U.S.-led invasion of Cuba but an invasion that the U.S. would not publicly support. In fact, Kennedy said, There will not be under any conditions be an intervention in Cuba by United States Armed Forces. This government will do everything it possibly can, meet its responsibilities to make sure that there are no Americans involved in any actions. This was, of course, entirely untrue. The landing point for the invading forces was a swamp on the southern coast of Cuba called the Bay of Pigs where Castro's army would not expect the exiles to enter. But a plan that was meant to be covert and successful was anything but. When the army of exiles were forced to surrender to Castro, Kennedy canceled the forthcoming U.S. airstrike that was meant to be air cover to protect the anti-Castro fighters. He essentially abandoned the Cuban exiles to Castro, who either killed or imprisoned them finally exchanging them 20 months later for $53 million worth of medicine from the United States. The failed mission was very embarrassing for the president. Gore continues. Then there was a business over Laos at Vienna between him and Khrushchev in which we stepped aside and that could be called a surrender on Laos. The country of Laos, nestled snugly between Vietnam and Thailand, had come into independence in the mid-1950s, but with poor leadership and an underdeveloped economy, the country lacked the ability to defend that status. Eisenhower had worked to keep Laos anti-communist, but Soviet armies were all the while slowly creeping in. When Kennedy came into office, he saw Laos as a test case for future cooperation between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And at a 1962 peace conference in Geneva, an agreement was signed proclaiming Laos as a neutral entity. But neutral isn't exactly free, and this distinction emphasized the weakness of Laos, and soon it was invaded and occupied by North Vietnam, and, because of its geography, was used as a supply route during the Vietnam War. Gore continues. The missile crisis nearly brought the United States to a nuclear end, as we did not know at the time, but the Russian commanders with the missiles on the island of Cuba had nuclear weapons which could have taken out the entire United States except around the Seattle area. 
He was playing a very dangerous game in order to look like the Augustus of the West and the winner of this Cold War. Kennedy campaigned in 1960 on the concept of a missile gap, claiming the U.S. trailed behind the Soviet Union in the number of missiles each army had in their possession. In truth, the U.S. had far more. Khrushchev and Castro had met secretly to plan for the construction of missile launch facilities in Cuba, even though Khrushchev had promised the U.S. he would not send weapons to Cuba. Soon photographs from U.S. surveillance planes showed Kennedy that Khrushchev had been lying. Kennedy went on television and exposed the Soviet Union's lies and demanded they remove the missiles. Wanting to prevent a nuclear war, both sides finally agreed to a deal where the Soviets would dismantle their weapon sites, and in exchange the U.S. promised to not invade Cuba and to remove secret missile silos they had been keeping in Turkey. After a very scary few weeks, the threat of nuclear war for the moment was over. Gore explained these failures further and highlighted what he later realized was truly dangerous about Jack Kennedy in 1996 on a radio show hosted by Jerry Brown, Gore's old political rival. Kennedy knew perfectly well there was no missile gap, that we were far ahead of the Soviet Union. Kennedy was basically, he, what he wanted in one sentence, and I knew him pretty well, he wanted to win the Cold War, preferably with a hot war. And he made a couple of attempts, the invasion of Cuba, which all went wrong. Yes, it was planned by the Eisenhower administration, but uh, he didn't have to say yes, and he didn't have to bungle it. He tries a war in Laos, and he can't get anybody interested in Laos. And then suddenly there's Vietnam, where we could stand tall. So they were acting out this very dangerous political international theater before the world for domestic uh, political reasons on the one hand, which is okay, it's fair enough to lie to the American people, since most presidents do at one time or another, in good or bad faith, but to believe your lies. This is where men become dangerous. Adolf Hitler, I'm told, was a great administrator, but unfortunately he believed all of his ugly rhetoric and turned out to be a monster. Jack believed that war could be won, and he kept saying, and I remember I said to him once, I've counted in your speeches now, now in this twilight time, I said, what are you, you're 44 years old, what are you talking about twilight time? The United States is on top of the world, we're the number one economy, number one militarily, and you're doing twilight time. Well, one reason is he was dying. He was not going to make it to 50, I don't think. He might have, with great medicine, lived longer. He was physically fragile, and why not have his moment of glory? After all, he said to me once, he said, what would Lincoln have been without the Civil War? I said, you think it's worth having your face on Mount Rushmore to kill 600,000 men in a war. He was just cockeyed, really, and uh, sad ending, very charming guy, intelligent. But if somebody that bright can get taken up by this rhetoric in politics, it's very scary. In the personal memory film from 1993, Gore remembers a time Jackie spoke up when she realized what was really going through her husband's head. Jackie suddenly said, quite seriously, she said, it's a thought that you people make a war and my children are going to be killed along with everybody else's. Don't you consider that? And he suddenly backed out, he said, well, look, I'm really a peace at any price man. I said, well, what's, this, what's the military buildup all about? Well, it was political reasons. He would have to explain at the next election, which he was not certain of winning, particularly if Rockefeller was the candidate, he'd have to explain the Bay of Pigs, the loss of Laos. So 
the fateful decision was made, Vietnam. We would go into this civil war in Southeast Asia, and he'd be a wartime president. So he, just before he went to Dallas, he sent 20,000 participating troops and committed us to the war and said to a great friend of mine, the day before he left for Dallas, he said, after Cuba and Laos, I've got to go all the way with this one. So I'm afraid he went to his death as a man who had committed the country to a war, which he might have ended earlier, we don't know, he didn't live, but a war that lasted 13 years and effectively ended the American hegemony of the world. The hegemony of the world, the leadership that the United States demonstrated in the first half of the 20th century, Gore suggests Kennedy ended through one failure after another. But to this day, the name John F. Kennedy is mostly synonymous with style and glamour, but also mystery and mythology, no doubt because of the way he was killed. Gore spoke about the assassination on Clive Anderson's talk show for the UK's Channel 4 in 1993. You don't believe that particular conspiracy theory that uh, oh. Kennedy was assassinated by the CIA or the FBI or something? Oh, I think there probably was a conspiracy. The problem with conspiracy in America is sooner or later, one of the conspirators is going to go on your program and talk about it. <laughs> I mean, they can't keep their traps yeah. shut in America. <laughs> And the fact that nobody has come forward and said to Barbara Walters, who's one of our great interviewers, and she's terribly good with conspirators, particularly murderers. <laughs> tell us again how you shot the president now. <laughs> I won't tell anybody, but you tell me about it. Yeah. It's sometimes called checkbook journalism. They, yeah. they become very excited by that. Yeah. But uh, I think there was probably a conspiracy. But the point about politics, then in 64, you said, I must have believed in it then. Yes, I did. I liked Jack. I thought it was going to be wonderful. Then look what he did as president. As Gore starts to get into conspiracies and what he sees as the truth behind the assassination, it is impossible to not speak of Jack Kennedy's brother, the man he appointed as his attorney general, Bobby Kennedy. It is wildly accepted that their father, Joe Kennedy, pushed Jack to make Bobby attorney general so that Jack would have someone who could be trusted watching his back, protecting him. Neither Jack nor Bobby loved the idea, and in fact, the general public was not thrilled with Bobby as attorney general. He was just 35 years old, many thought he was inexperienced, and worst of all, he was the president's brother. Bobby Kennedy passed the Massachusetts bar exam in 1951 and went to work as a lawyer for the U.S. Department of Justice. In 1955, he was appointed as chief counsel for the McClellan Committee, a group that looked into suspected criminal activity within labor unions. Bobby was given control of testimonial hearings, leading a crusade against the mafia and, in 1957, famously interrogating crime boss Jimmy Hoffa in a televised hearing. After he became attorney general, Bobby had no qualms doing whatever it took to shut down the mafia in the United States. It was his number one goal. In fact, in 1961, he pushed five anti-mob bills through Congress and tripled the size of the Justice Department's organized crime force. There was only one problem with this. Bobby's father, Joe Kennedy, the man who had pressured Jack Kennedy to make his brother attorney general, was longtime friends with Frank Costello, a former mafia leader, and with Sam Giancana, the head of the Chicago Crime Syndicate. And many believe that Giancana provided funds to assure that in 1960, Jack Kennedy was elected president. 
Gore believed that it was Joe Kennedy's relationship with the Mafia and Bobby's subsequent actions that led to Kennedy's assassination, as he relayed to Jerry Brown in 1996. So uh, you mentioned just that you brought up Kennedy. I don't know whether you want to talk about it, but this connection between Kennedy and the mob. Uh, Nixon was the White House vice president. He was the White House man for Cuba. And they decided that it was a good idea to kill Castro. Well, how do you kill him? Well, the best thing to do is get the mob, because the mob owned all the, the casinos in Havana. And the mob was very upset at, at losing to Castro a great source of revenue. And let's remember, Kennedy failed at his attack on Castro. One strike against him. Gore continues. Now, you ask about the assassination. I don't know anything more about it than anybody else, but A, it's a, agreed that it was a conspiracy, certainly. Uh, again, who benefits? Who would, want them, who would want to kill Jack? Well, one of the conditions of the mob, when they gave money to Kennedy, thanks to their relationship with his father, leave us alone. Edgar Hoover never bothered us. Justice Department never goes near organized crime. We don't bother you, you don't bother us. It was a truce. Bobby just got overambitious in the Kennedy manner and decided that uh, he was going to be a white knight and he was going to go after organized crime. And if you remember, around 61 or 2, the Appalachian meeting in New York where the various mob leaders got together. And Bobby got in on the act and some of them got uh, indicted, whatever. The mob did not take well to this. What are you doing to us? You know, we gave you this money and so forth and so on, and now you're going after us. Joe Kennedy is alleged to have said, well, you know, my boys are giant killers, dragon killers. They've got to have dragons to kill. This was their death warrant. So there's a conversation which has been recorded and much published between one of the, one of the mobsters, a guy called Traficanti, and uh, Marcello, who was the head of the Louisiana mob, which in turn were involved with the casinos in Havana, which was nearby. And they're swearing at, at Bobby Kennedy, the attorney general, going after them. And they're talking about uh, killing him. And uh, Marcello says, if a dog is bothering you, you don't cut off the tail. So you kill the president, is what was the meaning of that. And I assume that the mob, who knows, Oswald, whatever, how it was done, but it was done. So in Gore's view, it was Jack Kennedy's failure to kill Castro, followed by Bobby Kennedy's concentrated attack on the mob's activities that ended the president's life. Gore goes on to discuss what might have happened had Jack Kennedy's visit to Dallas on November 22, 1963, not gone the way it did. One of the thing, reasons this hasn't come out yet has only been alluded to in in 60, for the 64 election, they wanted to get rid of Johnson as vice president, and for a lot of reasons. Bobby particularly hated him. And Johnson is, was unsavory in many ways, but uh, he was terrified of the Kennedys. He knew of their mob connections. He thought they might kill him, and he knew they wanted him off the ticket, so he's sitting there very jittery. The, the plan was never, I don't think the family ever agreed on it before, before Dallas, after Dallas, of course, it didn't exist. They wanted a Kennedy-Kennedy ticket with Bobby Kennedy, the slayer of the uh, mafia in the United States, this crime killer, and Jack, the hero of the Western world. And that would have been hubris beyond belief, two brothers running president, vice president. I have a hunch they would not have gone through with it because not even the Kennedys could have pulled that one off. Where Gore and Jackie were semi-related and friendly, and Gore and Jack were very friendly and supported each other politically, Gore and Bobby were at odds with each other from the very start. Bobby was a strict Catholic moralist and disapproved of Gore's not-so-secret homosexual activities. 
and Gordon never liked Bobby's self-righteous, superior manner, so far removed from his brother's charisma and charm. But Jackie was always very fond of Bobby, and after the incident in 1961 at a White House dinner, when Bobby removed Gore's hand from Jackie's shoulder, an innocent and innocuous gesture, but one which Truman Capote blew out of proportion a number of years later, it seemed that Gore was no longer welcome at the White House. Did Bobby badmouth Gore to Jack and Jackie? Or was Jack himself now too busy moving from one foreign policy crisis to the next to have any time for his old friend? Invitations to the White House stopped arriving. Letters to Jackie went unacknowledged. When Jack Kennedy was shot on November 22, 1963, Gore was in Rome, but he quickly flew to Washington to attend the funeral. But he was not invited to the service, so he stood on the street with thousands of others and watched as the coffin passed by, the coffin which held the body of his old friend, Jack Kennedy. Gore did not trust Bobby Kennedy at all and went to great lengths to keep him from being elected to the Senate when he ran in 1964. Gore was so opposed to Bobby furthering his political career that he and a woman named Lisa Howard formed a group which supported the Republican candidate Kenneth Keating called Democrats for Keating. This anti-Bobby campaign got so much attention that Gore received an offer from the Mafia to help the Republican candidate win as he tells in Profile of a Writer from 1978. And I think about my own experience with the Mafia actually came in the United States in 1964 when I was the um, co-chairman of the Republicans for Senator Keating. This is when Senator Bobby Kennedy was running for office. And although I liked Jack Kennedy, I did not like Bobby Kennedy. So suddenly I had a phone call, a mysterious voice said to me, you'd like to beat this man on the phone. I said, yes, we'd like to beat him. He said, uh, I have some information. So we met in a bar, and he said to me, there are two ways that we can defeat Kennedy. He said, one way is the following. And he showed me a document that Bobby Kennedy had been involved with an underage girl in Hyannisport. And I said, well, I once wrote a play called The Best Man, which established the fact that sex should have no place in politics. I said, I don't think that's very interesting. He said, I have something else for you. He said, I have a document which has been sealed by a judge, which means that it can never be printed or shown, in which Bobby Kennedy, as the Attorney General of the United States, went in to uh, a judge's chambers to a lady who was being sued, and part of this person suing her was going to establish that she had indeed had carnal knowledge of the President of the United States and of his brother, the Attorney General. And Bobby Kennedy said, all right, to the girl, he said, if you can continue with this suit. He said, I will see that you are deported from the United States. So the judge sealed the papers. The attorney general went back. And I thought, well, although the sex is involved, I said, this is an interesting story of how to, how power is misused by a royal family. So I said, but I can't print this, I said to the man from the mafia, because it's, it's sealed by a judge. You go to jail. He said, well, he said, for $5,000, you can buy a little newspaper. You print it there. You eliminate the newspaper, the wire services take it up. And by then I was halfway out the door, and that was my last contact with the Mafia. In the Senate race of 1964, Bobby Kennedy spoke out against the sitting senator, Kenneth Keating, by saying that Keating had not done anything constructive in his four years as senator. But it was most likely Bobby's last name that truly won him the election, and sent him to the Senate that year. 
In fact, a strange essay Gore had written the year before very accurately showcased the power of the Kennedy name. In March of 1963, eight months before Jack Kennedy was killed, Esquire published Gore's essay, which he titled The Best Man, 1968, a nod to his successful play. The essay lays out very methodically who Gore predicted would be the players in the campaign for the presidency in 1968. Perhaps a strange theme for a magazine piece, since it was only 1963. The election of 1964 hadn't even happened yet. But in the essay, Gore takes for granted that Jack Kennedy would be re-elected in 1964. He says, quote, The country is pro-incumbent and easily bemused by personality. He goes on to surmise that Bobby Kennedy will be the candidate that Democrats choose in 1968, and he states that the name Kennedy is the primary reason for this. Gore jokingly says that, quote, There will be many thousands in 1968 who will vote for Robert Kennedy under the impression that John is running for a third term. But never missing a chance to point out Bobby's shortcomings, Gore goes on to say, quote, There are flaws in his persona hard to disguise. For one thing, it will take a public relations genius to make him appear lovable. He is not. He has none of his brother's human ease or charity. Of course, writing this in March of 1963, Gore was well ahead of himself. And even though he does begin with a disclaimer that for his prediction to be viable, all the players must be alive in 1968, Gore could never have foreseen the events that would soon occur. First, in November 1963, Jack Kennedy's assassination took away the possibility of a second term as president. And then, in June of 1968, Bobby Kennedy's assassination assured that he would not become the Democratic candidate for president. By the end of 1963, Gore's predictions were no longer relevant. And while his fear of a Bobby Kennedy presidency had been very strong, it was nothing compared to the way Gore felt when the 1968 election was over. America had made its choice, and the country was in the hands of a man who would eventually drag it down with conspiracies and cover-ups. The 37th President of the United States, Richard Nixon. Vidolatry is brought to you by We Own This Town. This episode was written and produced by me, with additional research by Joshua Reese. You can find more information about this episode at vidolatry.com. I'm Ryan Briegel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.